Well, good morning, and it's, it's nice to be with you this morning as we continue our short series on the heart of Christ. We're looking uh, particularly at the personal character of the Lord Jesus, the one that Christians have come to trust. We need to get to know our Lord. And one aspect of his character is the way that he deals gently with people. So our title for this morning is based on a description in Hebrews chapter 5, which actually describes the work of a high priest, but will particularly describe the Lord Jesus. If we could have the next slide, please. Yes, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2 says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Now, it seems a relatively simple verse, but actually I'd like to highlight three things from this verse. Firstly, there are two types of Christians that the Lord Jesus deals with. There are those who are ignorant, and there are those who are wayward. Now, those are two different groups. Those who are ignorant are people who perhaps are not talking about being rude, but there are people who don't know God very well, Christians who perhaps have false expectations of how life is meant to turn out, and they lack understanding of God's ways and God's strategy. Those who are wavered or who go astray, well, they have a different problem. They're not ignorant of God's ways, but they prefer their own way. They have a tendency to make bad choices in life, to have confidence in their own uh, choices, to go their own way, and they need to be brought back. So the first thing from that verse are two different uh, types of people. Secondly, it does tell us that the Lord Jesus deals with Christians like this. He does deal with people who are ignorant and his people who go astray. He doesn't just leave such people to go their own way, uh, leave them to their own devices and leave them behind. He does intervene and deal with them. But thirdly, in dealing with people like that, the Lord Jesus does it gently. So this morning we want to look at a couple of examples of how the Lord Jesus deals with people who have taken a wrong path, either through their lack of understanding and false expectations or through their waywardness. Now, first of all, imagine this scene in work. Suppose you have a boss who is very nice and supportive whenever you do your job properly. But suppose you mess up and make a serious mistake that reflects badly on your boss and his team. That can reveal a different side to your boss. If your incompetence and failure puts your boss and his team in a bad light, then uh, that can be seen as a threat to your boss's reputation. You can see it as weakening his authority in the eyes of his peers and in the eyes of the organization. And some bosses will not stand for that. Their reputation and authority takes precedence over your personal development. And you can find yourself being dealt with harshly 
At the very least, the boss will probably let other people know that it was you who made the mistake and perhaps mutter that you can't get the staff nowadays. Worse than that, you might find yourself being publicly rebuked and reprimanded or redeployed or even sacked. Now, your boss can make a good business case for reacting that way to your failure. He can't simply accept incompetence. Your boss could say justifiably that his standing within the organization is important for the team and must be protected. So he has to deal firmly with incompetence. Now, maybe you've come across a boss like that. But is God like that? If we're servants of God, how does God react when we make mistakes which reflect badly on God? When our incompetence as Christian servants brings God's name into disrepute? What sort of a boss is God? We will answer this question by looking at two case studies of how Jesus dealt with people who were either ignorant or who were going astray. So I want to take two case studies. The first will be someone who was going astray. The second will be someone who had insufficient understanding. And the first case study is of Peter and how the Lord dealt with Peter. I do apologize in advance to Peter uh, before I meet him in heaven because we so often seem to focus on Peter and his mistakes. But this morning, the focus is not going to be so much on Peter, but on how the Lord dealt with Peter after Peter had denied the Lord. So I'm going to rely on your knowledge of the events, but uh, let me summarize the salient points. When the Lord Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, he was taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. There, he went through a trial before the Jewish religious leaders. In that trial, there were witnesses, false witnesses, who came forward and made false accusations about what the Lord Jesus had taught. Surely, there should have been someone who knew what the Lord Jesus had taught and who could have been uh, there to give an accurate account of the Lord's teaching and to vindicate him. And at the time, you would have expected a witness to be available. The Lord looked across the courtyard and saw Peter. The only one of his friends, the only one, the only person there who had listened to all the Lord's teaching. Who was better qualified than Peter to recount what Jesus had taught? But the Lord could see that Peter had no intention of coming forward as a witness. Peter was standing by a fire, and despite the Lord's own suffering, the Lord noted several details of that scene. First, the Lord observed that the fire that Peter was warming himself at was not burning wood, but it was burning charcoal. John 18, verse 18, gives us that detail. And you may know that, uh, even from barbecuing, that the smell of a charcoal fire is quite different and distinctive from the smell of a wood fire. And the Lord noted and remembered that detail. And the other detail, which came as no surprise to the Lord, was Peter's angry reaction <clears throat> when he was asked the same question 
for the third time. Three times Peter was asked basically the same question. Are you with him, with the Lord Jesus? The first two times Peter was asked, <coughs> he just said no. But when he was asked a third time, Peter, we are told, got really annoyed. So annoyed with being asked the same question three times that he became angry. In fact, we're told that on that third time, he started to swear and to use oaths. And Peter's vehemence in denying the Lord that third time must have pierced the Lord's heart. It was an important detail of Peter's character which the Lord remembered of how when he was pressed three times that it drove him to become angry. Perhaps his pride had been hurt when his first two answers hadn't been accepted. Now you come forward to a meeting perhaps a few weeks later on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is described in John chapter 21. After the Lord's resurrection, the disciples have been told to go to Galilee to meet the Lord there. One evening, Peter and six other disciples decided to go fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They fished all night and caught nothing. But early in the morning, uh, they heard a stranger on the shore calling them to fish on the other side of the boat. So they tried that, and they caught a huge catch of fish. And it was John who first clicked that the stranger on the shore was Jesus. And we're told that he told Peter. Now, when the disciples pulled the boat in and came to meet the stranger, they found that the stranger had already prepared breakfast for them. There was a nice warm fire burning and some bread and fish cooking on it. As the disciples came to warm themselves at the fire, six of them didn't notice anything special about the fire. But we're told in John 21, verse 9, that the fire was a charcoal fire. The word is the same as had been used earlier. Uh, it's like the word for anthracite, different from, word, from wood. That would have meant nothing to the other six disciples but it meant a lot to Peter. Perhaps not realizing the significance of it, the smell quickly recalled to his mind everything that had happened in the house of Caiaphas. There were only two people in that group who knew what had happened at the house of Caiaphas, the Lord and Peter. None of the other disciples had been there. And I'm pretty sure that Peter had never breathed a word to, his, to the other disciples of what had taken place and how he had denied the Lord. So what was the Lord's strategy in dealing with Peter? Peter's silence as a potential witness had contributed to the Lord's reputation being damaged. How would the Lord respond to that? Would he be like the boss we thought of earlier? Would the Lord rebuke Peter publicly? Would he embarrass him in front of the other disciples? No, he didn't. The Lord certainly did deal with Peter that morning, but he did it so gently and so sensitively. The day before, the Lord Jesus 
had been in Galilee ready for this meeting and had carefully bought some charcoal. In the very early hours of the morning, the Lord brought that charcoal along with bread and fish and came to a little bay on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He built a fire and lit it and waited. When Peter arrived with the six other disciples, Peter's memory was triggered by the smoke of the burning charcoal. The Lord was gently sending message to Peter, which nobody else would have picked up, but only Peter understood. And then the Lord did a second thing. He asked Peter a question. Do you love me? Then he asked the question, same question again. Peter, do you love me? But then he asked Peter a third time. And we're told that the third time that the Lord asked the same question, Peter started to get annoyed. He was hurt that the Lord hadn't listened the first two times to his answer. And Peter's, that same failure in Peter's character seemed to bubble up. When he was pressed three times, perhaps again, his pride was hurt at having to give the answer three times. But the Lord had remembered that flaw in Peter's character that he had seen in the house of Caiaphas. The Lord was gently bringing to the surface not so much Peter's failure as a potential witness, but that inner anger that welled up when Peter was probed three times about something. That was a flaw in Peter's character that had to be exposed and had to be dealt with. The Lord was not trying to make Peter feel guilty for what he had done in being silent when the Lord needed support, but rather the Lord was dealing with that character and flaw in Peter which flared up when he was exposed and repeatedly probed. That latent anger, perhaps pride and impatience, had to be dealt with. So the Lord was not so much dealing with Peter's sinful act as dealing with Peter's character to turn Peter into a much more patient and humble and gentle person. And the Lord at that moment was so confident that his dealing with Peter would be successful that he entrusted to Peter the huge task of caring for the other disciples. Feed my sheep, he said to Peter. But notice how gently the Lord did it. Not once did the Lord embarrass Peter in front of the others. None of the other disciples had a clue that something very significant was taking its place. That is one example of how the Lord Jesus deals gently with people who may have character flaws, perhaps a bit of pride that uh, can lead us astray. The second case study, I, I want to look at a person who was dealt with by the Lord Jesus. And this person was a good servant of the Lord who had become the victim of injustice and whose commitment to the Lord Jesus was beginning to cause their faith to waver. And or their, their commitment to the Lord Jesus was beginning to waver because 
of the injustice they were suffering. And because the Lord Jesus did not act in a way that met their expectations. So I'd like to read a passage to you from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 18 to 21. Now, here Matthew is quoting from Isaiah. But speaking of the Lord Jesus, Matthew says this and brings this quote to our attention. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not quench or snuff out, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Here, Matthew is quoting from Isaiah 42, uh, which is the first of the famous servant songs in Isaiah. It's looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and to the tactics of Messiah. But I've deliberately read Matthew's quotation of this because of the context in which Matthew places this quotation. Matthew starts this third section in his gospel in chapter 11 by telling us What happened to John the Baptist? The tragic story of what happened to John the Baptist. John had come to prepare the way for the Lord, for Jesus the Messiah. But John had become the victim of great injustice. John had been put in prison by King Herod. John had simply made the factual statement that the relationship that King Herod had with his new wife Herodias was not lawful according to Jewish law. That was a simple fact. But Herod's wife, Herodias, deeply resented the fact. The absolute morals of the Bible did not correspond to her flexible DIY morality. And she wanted to silence John the Baptist permanently. And so John was arrested by Herod. Now, John was understandably very concerned about this injustice And while he was locked up in prison, perhaps he remembered this passage in Isaiah 42 about the Messiah bringing justice. And John wanted and needed justice. He wanted Jesus as the Messiah to see that justice was done. He wanted Jesus to use his power, perhaps to overturn Herod uh, and dramatically set John free. But the Lord Jesus seemed to be doing nothing He seemed to have forgotten about John. And John had been badly bruised by his disappointment. And so John sent a delegation to the Lord Jesus with the leading question, are you the one that was to come? Or should we look for another? John was questioning the tactics of the Lord Jesus. He was trying to twist the Lord's arm to intervene immediately and bring swift justice. And how would Jesus deal with a good servant like John the Baptist? Well, in response to the message from John, the Lord Jesus firstly upholds John's position in God's plans by quoting from Malachi. The Lord quotes, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. 
So the Lord describes John as God's messenger. Behold, my messenger. But when Matthew speaks of Christ, he says, behold, my servant. There is a huge difference between John as merely God's messenger and the Lord Jesus as God's servant. It was not up to the messenger to try to dictate the message and to try to dictate the tactics of the servant. As I mentioned, you will have noticed, though, that uh, the quotation from Isaiah does indeed say that the mission of Messiah will be eventually to bring justice. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, Isaiah foresaw. He says that uh, he will act until he brings justice to victory. But bringing justice is a complex task. You just need to hear how many people in our world today are crying out for justice. But behind many of the cries for justice in this world is actually a cry for power. This world's view is that if you want justice, you have to sweep away the current powers, power structures, the current governments, and grab hold of power yourself. And that's how you bring justice. This world seems to think that the secret of bringing justice is to use power to deliver the oppressed. But that is not God's strategy, and that is not the strategy of the servant of God. That quotation from Isaiah describes something of the tactics by which the servant will eventually bring justice on earth. He will not do it by power. He will not do it by political uh, agitation or by military might. You notice that verse, he will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Our world today thinks that that is an ineffective way to bring justice. But the Lord is concerned not only with the victims of justice, but with the perpetrators of injustice. We often sing that hymn, Amazing Grace. That was written by a slave trader. If the Lord had come and punished slave traders, if he had just wiped out those who brought oppression to those poor slaves, John Newton would never have come to know the Lord. But through the Lord's patience in dealing gently with John Newton, the Lord Jesus brought justice and justification to people who otherwise would have had no hope of experience justice and restoration. John the Baptist was beginning to think that the Lord Jesus had forgotten him. He was hoping that the Lord would ride in on a white horse, as it were, and use his power to overthrow Herod's government, to open, throw open the gates of the prison and set John free. John did not understand the complexities of bringing true justice. John was ignorant of God's ways. He was a good man, a loyal man, but his ignorance of God's ways was leading him to question the Lord. So how did the Lord deal gently with John in his lack of understanding? When Jesus spoke about John, he compared him with a reed that was blown in the desert, in the wilderness, and that was sounding almost like an instrument. 
reeds were used and are still used to make certain musical instruments. In orchestras today, we speak of reed instruments. Instruments like oboes, clarinets, and saxophones all use reeds to make the sound. Even some older organs use reeds. And John, in his earlier preaching days, had indeed sounded out the message of God, the word of God, in the desert. He had been like a clear-sounding instrument, a reed instrument. But now he was a bruised reed. He wasn't in any mood to preach. He was more inclined to complain. He was doubting the very person he had spoken about. Or to use another analogy, John in his early preaching days had been like a bright lamp that had burned brightly there in the desert, bringing the light of God's word to the nation. But now, as he lay in Herod's prison, in his dungeon, with the threat of execution hanging over him, John was not spreading any light. Indeed, he was questioning the light. The light in John's heart had all but been snuffed out. The burning lamp was now reduced to a smoldering wick. How did Jesus deal with someone like that? Someone who had burned brightly in in the earlier days, but was now going through a time of darkness and doubt. Someone who perhaps through the way life had turned out and the way that they failed to understand uh, that life hadn't met their expectations. They become disappointed with God. How does the Lord Jesus deal with someone like that? Who was no longer sounding out the message that they had been given, no longer spreading the light of God's word. Does the Lord Jesus deal with someone like that the way that boss we were thinking about earlier deals with an incompetent member of their team? Would the Lord deal with John as a failure set him aside and use someone else? Would the Lord just say, well, you can't get the staff these days? Does he just regard John as a casualty of war, as a statistic, as a failure? Well, certainly not according to Isaiah and not according to Matthew. A bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not quench or will not snuff out. John was a damaged bruised reed. But Jesus could see that although he was bruised, he was not broken. He was fixable. John was a smoldering wick, not completely extinguished yet. The Lord saw that he still had the potential for his inner fire to be fanned into flame once again. And so the Lord, in the message that he sent back to John, dealt that dealt gently with John. The Lord explained to John that his mission, that the Lord's mission, was much longer term and much more global than John had realized. The Lord used other parts of Isaiah to encourage John to see that he was part of a huge program that was much grander and much more long term than John had ever dreamed of. John had been hurt and damaged, yes, but partly by a lack of understanding of God's plans and God's ways. 
In that sense, John was confused because of his own ignorance of God's ways. And the Lord deals gently with those who are ignorant. The Lord took that bruised reed that John had become, that smoldering wick, and gently gave John, through the other words of Isaiah, a new understanding of God's ways, which John had not had before. And as a result, we read elsewhere that John once again discovered the desire to speak the word of God. And he spoke it personally to Herod, who came to John from time to time because John had rediscovered a desire to speak about God's word. And in that dungeon, the smoldering flame had been, uh, the smoldering wick had been fanned into flame again. In that prison cell, John once again started to shine the light of God's word into the heart of the king. When the executioners arrived at John's prison cell, John did not recant on his mission. He did not give up his faith. He did not deny his Lord that he had come to prepare the wayfare. John was prepared to lay down his life. He may have been bruised, but he was not broken. And even in his death, like a restored musical instrument, John sounded out his loyalty to the Lord with a reinvigorated clarity. Earlier, we were thinking about the sort of boss that some of you may have had. The sort of boss who deals firmly and even harshly with those who fail in their job. Would you like to place your whole life into the hands of a boss like that? Or would you like to instead to place your hands into the boss, a boss like the Lord Jesus, who deals gently with those who are wayward, incompetent, and who lack understanding? Those of us who are believers, perhaps for a long time, have had some experience of the gentle and tactful way that the Lord Jesus works with our characters to change us. But perhaps you know someone who hasn't yet trusted the Lord in their lives. Perhaps even listening here this morning, you haven't given your life to the Lord as your boss in life. If that's the case, then you're at the, the mercy of other forces which will be your boss. If you live, for example, for what other people think of you, that can be a very harsh and unforgiving boss. Or if you insist on being in control of your own life, of making all the decisions yourself, then how do you handle your own failures? How do you bring yourself back when your character has led you into making bad decisions that take you down uh, wrong paths? It's all but impossible to bring ourselves back, to be our own mentor. We need someone external who will mentor us with gentleness and with understanding. And the only person in history who has ever demonstrated that, that ability to deal gently with those who have gone astray is the Lord Jesus himself. Let's just pray as we finish. Our Father, we thank you for your servant, the Lord Jesus, who deals gently with those who lack understanding and those who perhaps through flaws in our character go astray. 
We thank you for the records in Scripture, those honest records, where we see the Lord Jesus restoring people who had gone astray. Father, those of us who in our lives have felt that same gentle touch of the Lord on our lives, as we were thinking earlier, we want to give you thanks for his character and for the way that he does not overlook our faults, but nevertheless deals with them in a gentle and sensitive way. And we pray for those who may have been uh, dissuaded from putting their lives into the hands of the Lord because of false impressions that they have been given of God in this world. And we pray that as they see something of the true character of the Lord Jesus, they would come and put their lives in his hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.